My husband, Rob, and I attended a seminar a few years back called Shielding Innocence that we did here at Summit, and uh, our daughter was about two. The seminar was equipped, uh, it was uh, designed to equip parents to help protect their kids from childhood sexual abuse. And, and, and at the beginning, they share these horrifically tragic statistics about childhood sexual abuse, about um, the frequency of it, um, and that it's almost always a family member or a friend of family. So up front, it's pretty alarming. But then they provide you with these really helpful strategies to help protect your kids. And it's not just like don't let them out of the house or you know, don't give them social media, things like it's, it's It's really easily executable stuff that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Uh, the first thing they said was uh, simple things like tell your kids the truth about sex and sexuality, answer their questions honestly, tell them the age-appropriate truth. Uh, because if you don't, they're gonna go looking elsewhere for their answers. One really helpful thing they suggested for, for parents of young kids like us was to teach your kids, just teach them the correct names for their anatomical parts. Like a kid should be able to say, I have a penis or a vagina, not a hoo-ha or a wee-wee. And, and, and no judgment, hey, if that's you, because up until that seminar, I'd been calling my daughter Ember's parts her bits and pieces, because I didn't know any better, you know, I mean, who knows? Uh, but it makes so much sense. You know, if, if a kid knows the right name for their parts, they can have better boundaries around those parts. They can tell you what happened if, God forbid, someone were to touch them inappropriately. So it was really helpful, you know. And, and they even give you these strategies for teaching the kids when they're in the bathtub. So little kids are in the bathtub and we say, okay, Amber, what are the parts that God made special for no one to touch? And at the age of two, she could name off her parts. And then we'd say, okay, babe, now what do you do if someone tries to touch you there? And she would say, stop, don't touch my butt. <laughs> and so... You know, we did this exercise at bath time for, I don't know, a, a few months until, uh, until she got really confident in her responses. Now, of course, we had no way of knowing whether what we taught her would translate to a real-life situation, and I hope to God we never have to know that. Uh, but it was really helpful either way because it, it helped us learn to, to talk to her about her body. And it's really helpful for her. It's really helpful for us. We did get a little bit of a glimpse um, at her confidence one day. This was probably a year after the seminar, and I was picking her up from daycare. And in the three-year-old room, some of the sweet little buddies, they, like, give each other hugs before they go home. It's really cute. Um, and so I was picking her up, and, and her little buddy, we'll, we'll call him Logan. Um, Logan went to give her a goodbye hug. And I don't know if this poor kid just accidentally grazed her chest or something when he went in for the hug, because Ember jumps back and says, Logan, don't touch my nipples! <laughs> If there had been a jukebox, it would have went, you know, I mean, parents and staff looking at me in judgment, and I've never been so simultaneously embarrassed and proud in my entire life. That's right, you tell him, baby girl. But also, Logan, I'm so sorry. Logan's mom, I'm sorry. He looked pretty scarred. I don't think that kid's gonna touch another nipple for the rest of his life. This is gonna be a sermon primarily about sex. Well, it's about lust, but I'm terribly practical, so it's gonna be about sex because I don't know why we would talk about lust theoretically. Um, so this means it's, it's gonna be a very adult sermon. And, and I opened up with that story just because I want you guys to loosen up. Just loosen up, okay? We're gonna, the blood of Jesus, it's enough to cover saying nipple in church, I promise you. So we're gonna loosen up. I'm gonna say some words. They might not be words you expect to hear in church because we don't talk about sex in the church, but we should. We absolutely should because people, including our kids, are gonna get their information somewhere. They're gonna get it somewhere. It, actually, they get it everywhere. Sex is everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's ironic because we're not allowed to have a conversation about it like this in the church. Oh no, you can't do that. And in that sense, it's nowhere, but it's also everywhere, right? Sex is everywhere. We can't talk about it, but we can sing about it. 
we can make music videos that depict it. We can make mainstream movies where they pretend to have it. We can make pornographic movies where they actually do. Our, our advertisements, billboards, commercials, they, they use sex you know, to, to help us figure out what, what mustard we want to buy or you know, what vacuum is right for our home. I mean, people are seeing it. People are hearing about it. They're talking about it, even if it's not in the church. But as it is our God whom we gather every Sunday to worship, who invented sex, it feels like a little bit of a miss that we would never mention it. Because God talks about sex. God has opinions on sex, and not just all the thou shalt nots. I mean, there, there are those for good reason, as, as our passage today will affirm. But God, that's not all God has to say about sex. He says a lot more. There's a whole book of the Bible, Song of Songs, devoted to the delights of sex including the arousal that precedes it and the, and the closeness and intimacy afterward. And it's fairly explicit. The Bible says, he says, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. And then she says, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Hint, it is not a literal garden. <laughs> She's talking about S-E-X, right? And by the way, Amy Caulfield owes me a dollar because she said I would not spell sex during this sermon, but she underestimates how seriously I take a bet. So... <laughs> God, God created sex, and he created it good, and while we can't ignore its dangers, we miss its goodness when we focus solely on how not to do it. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at both. We're continuing this morning in our sermon series, Undone, as OJ mentioned, where we are taking a closer look at the vices that we so often involve ourselves in and the virtues that we so often leave undone. This week, we're looking at lust, the vice of lust. Next week, we'll be looking at the virtue of chastity. And for this series... We've chosen characters in the Bible who embody these vices and virtues as kind of a case study. And the, the character I chose for our discussion of lust today is King David. Now, King David, he's a complex character. Uh, the, the, same, the prophet Samuel calls him a man after God's own heart, which feels like a really big deal. But then he also has, uh, he has these character defects. He has flaws. He has weaknesses, moch, most of which manifest in his family life. And if you're familiar with David's story and you know that we're talking about lust, you've probably already guessed that we're going to be talking about David's affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And we are going to talk about that. But more importantly, we're going to talk about the aftermath of that affair. So here's the story. David becomes king and he just has like a bunch of wives. We don't even know how many. The, the Bible just says David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. This is after he already had a few. We know of at least six. And so it's, it's not a lack of options that drives him toward Bathsheba, but, but David's sin begins, as many sins do, simply by having his body in the wrong place. 2 Samuel 11 begins, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. I don't even have to finish the sentence, and we already have a wealth of information. It's the springtime, it's when kings go off to war, but David sends Joab. So David doesn't go. He stays in Jerusalem, and he is walking leisurely on the roof of his palace one, one evening, and he looks down and he sees a woman bathing on her roof, which, by the way, that would have been totally normal. The roof is where you would go for privacy in the ancient Near East. It still is in some parts of the Middle East today. But the palace, of course, is higher than all the houses, so David sees her. And then there is a series of verbs in quick succession over the next two lines. It says, David saw, David sent, and David took. So he sees Bathsheba, he sends someone to find out who she is, and then he takes her into his bed, even though he knows now that she is the wife of Uriah. And all this began because David's body is in the wrong place. If he had been with his troops where he was supposed to be, he would not have seen. 
but David saw. And lust, because it is a greedy emotion, moves very quickly from the seeing to the taking. So David took, and then he sends her home, and then she finds out she's pregnant. So David calls her husband Uriah back from the war, and he tries to, he gets him drunk, he tries to trick him into having sex with his wife so it'll look like his baby, but, but Uriah won't do it because he says, I don't want to do something that the other men can't do while they're at war. I mean, what a guy, right? And so David then secretly has him placed at the very front lines of the war and then has the other troops withdraw from him so he is sure to be killed, and of course he is. And then David sends for the pregnant Bathsheba again, and this time takes her as his wife. And that's where our passage picks up today. So David has committed this secret sin, and it appears as though he's gotten away with it. But then God knows, and he sends Nathan the prophet to confront David for what he's done. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and you will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is God's word. My husband, Rob, loves adventures, and so when any of his friends from up north come to visit us, he wants to give them like a Florida adventure. And, and we live in Waterford, right around Dean and Curry Ford. And when we bought our house in 2012, I think one of the selling points for Rob is that our, our, our backyard backs up to the Little Econ River. Now it's like a, it's not coming through heavily. It's like a swamp with a lot of woods and stuff, but it's the little econ. So Rob's friend Alex comes into town and Rob decides that he wants to take Alex canoeing, but to spice things up a bit, he decides that he wants to put into the little econ from our backyard and then they're just going to follow the river as far as they can. Like that, that's the whole plan. Just wherever they are, that's where they'll be. And then my job is to come pick them up, you know, wherever they make landfall. So Rob and Alex, they march out of the back door through my backyard with a canoe on their heads and they just disappear into the unknown. Um, that was around 9 a.m. Around 1 p.m. I get the call, right? Hey, can you come pick us up? Now, it's been four hours, so I assume I'm going to have to do at least a bit of driving to go get them. And I say, great, where are you? And Rob says, 
We're at the CVS at Dean and Lake Underhill. <laughs> now, for reference, that is less than a mile from our home where they put in. It's just very, very close. It's where I pick up my prescriptions. I could walk there. So I go, and I pull up to the CVS, and sure enough, there's Rob and Alex sitting on the canoe, and they were, they were just destroyed. <laughs> I mean, wet, swampy, sweating, just bleeding from 20 or 30 cuts on each of their legs, covered in bug bites, just, just destroyed. Apparently, there were so many logs down in the little econ that they, had, they would go like three inches in the canoe, and then they'd get stuck, so they'd get out, and they'd pick up the canoe, they'd carry it over the logs, they'd put back in, they'd go another three inches, they'd get stuck, and, and they just kept doing it, because they just kept thinking, you know, if we, if we just get a little further, we're going to get to open river. And so they just kept going. They just kept going into, into the unknown, you know, just into the weeds and the muck and the mud pits and, and, and until presumably they got faint from blood loss and called me. So now would they have, would they have set out on that adventure if they knew where it would take them, you know, soggy and bleeding at a CVS? No, I don't, I don't think they would have. I don't think they would have, but I also don't think they should have been shocked either. Okay, uh, they didn't plot a course. They didn't have a map. They, they put in from our backyard where the econ comes in at maybe a heavy trickle. You know, they went in the hottest part of the day. They, they kept going even though there were red flags. You know, they just kept going even when things were going very badly. So it should not have been a shock that they ended up bloody and dehydrated at CVS. I mean, this, this is not a supernatural consequence. That's what I'm trying to say. It was a very natural consequence given the choices that they made. Now, when David takes Bathsheba, he didn't mean for all those bad things to happen. He didn't mean for these other bad things to happen, but, but he keeps walking toward them, which is logistically equivalent. And the bad things that happen, they're, they're, they're not all that supernatural. Pregnancy is not supernatural. You know, they're, they're, it's reasonable that his children will follow in his footsteps. In the next chapters, David's eldest son, Amnon, becomes obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar, and he rapes her. And David finds out, and it says that he's really furious, but he didn't do anything. And we don't know why. You know, it could be that he doesn't want to punish his heir apparent, but, but it also could be that he's ashamed of what he'd done to Bathsheba, and so you know, he doesn't feel like he can punish anyone else's sexual sin. You know, we don't know. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is so angry that he plots for two years and then eventually kills his brother Amnon for what he did. And, 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 and later Absalom tries to usurp David's throne. He takes over the palace and, and, and to cement his right to rule, he takes all of David's wives up to the roof of the palace where he has sex with them. And this fulfills Nathan's prophecy, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. But again, even though this fulfills a prophecy, these consequences aren't that supernatural. What happened with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, it, it, it's the natural result. It feels like the natural result of exceptionally bad parenting, uh, of not protecting your daughter, of, of modeling sexual sin for your sons and taking whatever you want. It's, it's just not that supernatural. I mean, God created human beings by design. He, he, he gave us a, a design and he gave us a world to live in a certain way. So, so if you think about it, you know, if, if, if God indeed created and ordered the heavens and the earth and he created them with intentionality to thrive under specific conditions, if he created us in his image to thrive when we display his character and how we live, then it shouldn't be a surprise that, that the natural consequence of living according to our design would bring blessing. That 
Integrity would mean a good reputation. That genuine kindness would mean a multitude of friends. That generosity would mean that we're not in bondage to our things and it should be equally unsurprising that to live outside of our design would bring pain. That gossip would mean enemies. That lying would mean people are suspicious of you. That, that, that lust would ultimately leave us wanting more. God's creation will follow its desires. It's, it's, it's not always supernatural punishment. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it, it, if you don't change the oil in your car and your car breaks down, the car isn't punishing you, right? And if you don't ever walk your dog and your dog gets fat, he's not punishing you. And, and if you floss your teeth, they're not rewarding you by not giving, getting cavities. You know, it's, 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 this is a natural consequence. When we live according to our design, we experience the natural consequences of our faithfulness. And when we live outside of that design, we experience the natural consequences of our infidelity. And, and, and I know, I know there is room for divine punishment and divine favor, but honestly, God doesn't need to punish me for my sins most of the time because the heavens and the earth do that well enough on their own. And you know, I want it to be God. I'd rather blame God when I'm in pain. I want to blame God. I, I, want to, I want to believe this is supernatural punishment because then it's God's fault. And, you know, he's the only one with the power to make the punishment stop. And if he doesn't, then I, I guess he just doesn't love me that much. But that, guys, that's a cop-out. It's a cop-out, and, and I use it, and I know it's a cop-out even when I'm doing it. And it's a cop-out because it, it, it takes away all of my responsibility to exercise basic wisdom and restraint in my own personal choices. I mean, that is not too much of the universe to ask of us. We have to, we have to do this. When, when I embrace lust, when I indulge it, I am choosing something. I am choosing to walk a path toward my ruin. It may be a very long path or it may be a very short one, but my point is that God does not need to lift a finger to make that ruin happen. When we walk toward the wrong things, when we take steps toward them, they, may, they might be tiny little itty bitty baby steps, but you take enough of them and you're gonna get to where you're going. You may not mean for bad things to happen, but when we walk toward them, they will. Here's, here's the problem with lust. You can never really satisfy it. No amount of scratching will ever really relieve the itch. It always leaves us wanting more. And the reason for this is that sex was not created for pleasure alone. It was created for pleasure in part. I mean, it's part of the gift of sex. It's part of the design. You know, God, God, God made us sexual beings. He created us that way. He, he's not looking down from heaven going, oh, I not, not, didn't think they'd do that with those. You know, I mean, it's, it's his design, right? It's by his design that we are aroused. It's by his design that we have sex. None of that is wrong. He designed sex to bring pleasure, but not to bring pleasure alone. This is where we get tripped up. Lust, it's a party for one. Because lust takes the good gift of sexual desire and strips it down, it strips away from it every good thing except the pleasure itself. And in that way, lust doesn't make too much of sex. It makes far, far too little. You understand? Sex was, was designed to give pleasure, yes, but also to bond people together, heart and soul and flesh. And also to create new life. It is by nature a life-giving act, or at least it should be. 
we recently had to have part of the talk with my daughter, Ember. She's five. Um, <laughs> and we had to have this talk because she came home from school demanding to know how babies get out of their mommy's bellies. And, and I tried to sidestep the question, you know, will doctors help the babies get out of their mommy's bellies? And she vetoed that. She wanted specifics, which leads me to believe an older child had already given her some specifics. So, and I could hear, you know, the shielding innocence people in my head. Tell your child the age-appropriate truth. Tell your child the age-appropriate truth. So I look at Rob, and he gives me the nod, like, this is all you. <laughs> and so I go for it. And I said, well, Peanut, uh, you know, babies get out of their mommy's bellies through the vagina. It's like, a, it's like a tube that connects your belly to the world. And she goes, like your poop? Uh, yeah, sort of like your poop. It's a different tube entirely, though. And then Rob jumps in, and he's like, listen, baby, uh, we don't talk about private parts to other kids at school because they might not know as much as you do, okay? And she's like, okay. And he's like, but if you have any questions about your body, you can always ask mommy and daddy and we will always tell you the truth, okay? And she's like, deal. And then she runs off up the stairs and he goes, where are you going? And she yells back over her shoulder, I need to go draw a picture of a baby coming out of my vagina for show and tell. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I get so many phone calls from her teacher. <laughs> but I wanted to tell her the truth. You know, tell her the age-appropriate truth. And the age-appropriate truth for us is that sex was not meant for pleasure alone, but lust takes this good gift and it, and it removes from it the bond it creates. And it removes from it the life-giving nature and, and, and makes it simply an act of pleasure. And even this good component, the pleasure, it, it damages even further by making it an act of pleasure only for me, not for us. Frederick Buechner writes, sex is sinful to, to the degree that instead of drawing you closer to other human beings in their humanness, it unites bodies but leaves the lives inside of them hungrier and more alone than before. I mean, that's why it leaves us wanting more. When we strip sex of all its good, except this one little piece, of, cor of course that is not going to satisfy us. It's like, it'd be like eating a cake made of only sugar. You know, it just doesn't taste as good. It doesn't satisfy. That's, that's why you can have lust within a marriage. Lust can be present in a marriage. Lust is a heart problem. Marriage doesn't solve it. If you look at your spouse as a means to receive pleasure without any care for their pleasure or their feelings in return, that's lust. Pleasure, pleasure is a good thing. It really is. But I am more and more convinced that it is not meant to be an ultimate thing. It's always meant to be a byproduct of other activity, it should not be our goal. I mean, we, we receive pleasure when we read good books, when we eat good food, and you know, contrary to all reason, when we exercise. But the goal of food and books and exercise isn't pleasure, right? The goal is nourishment and learning and health. Pleasure is just a happy byproduct, but when we make pleasure the goal of any activity, we risk addiction to it. This is science. You know, if, if you're addicted to heroin over time, you need increasingly more of the drug to get the high. It's the same with sex and pornography, which, by the way, not just a men's problem. This is increasingly a woman's problem, partially, especially for our young folks, because sex is everywhere. It is so ubiquitous online. You don't have to go looking for it. It will come looking for you. I met a couple of really wonderful gals here at Summit, um, students, one of whom had been exposed to pornography and had developed a pornography addiction as a result of an accidental exposure on Instagram. You know, she was just scrolling. And there it was. Another gal 
poor thing was exposed against her will because you know a young man in one of her biology classes or something sent her a, 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 a text message with a picture of his penis. Guys, by the way, don't do that. Because it's not, it's, I mean, if that's unsolicited, it's assault. And this developed in her uh, an addiction that took life from her. We don't have to look for porn. It is looking for us. 60% of teenagers look at pornography monthly. One in five mobile searches, and this just isn't, this isn't teenagers, this is us in this room. One in five mobile searches is for porn. And this isn't just outside the walls of the church. This is a statistic for inside the walls. This isn't a them problem, it is an us problem. And it's not just a lust problem, it is a justice problem. There was an anti-trafficking firm that surveyed women coming out of the sex trade, and over 50% of the exploited women said that while they were being sold for sex, they were also forced into making pornographic videos. Now, maybe you don't think porn is a sin. I know people who don't. But I think we can all agree that sexual slavery is. And there is no getting around the fact that the two are linked. Porn also has an incredibly high rate of escalation, meaning what once got the engine revving doesn't anymore. And then we have to go looking for new and novel and often dark new images to get the same level of stimulation. We need more of the drug to get the high. One blogger writes, as a struggling porn addict myself, I know what the producer said about porn getting more and more brutal on the women is true, and it will only get worse. There's something about human nature that gets desensitized to the ordinary. And then all of a sudden, normal sex, normal human sex between consenting adults isn't good enough. You know, I, I think sometimes we give lust a pass because we're like, well, it's kind of a personal sin. I mean, no, no one's really getting hurt. Yes, they are. It hurts people. It hurts the people involved in the industry that feeds it. It hurts people who are molested, people who, who are hurt and, and, and assaulted because porn creates and feeds in us appetites that we were never meant to have. It hurts people. And not only that, and, and I need you to understand this, it hurts us when we use it. It hurts us too. And maybe it doesn't feel like it does, but listen, lust dehumanizes us. It makes us less able to enjoy the, the simple pleasures of sex that God created us to enjoy. It desensitizes us. It, it makes us numb. And so if we want to take this good gift of sex and strip it down to simply my own pleasure, we have to realize that it is stripping us down too. It's not worth it. Everyone loses. And hey, I'm, I'm not just, I don't mean to just pick on the folks who are struggling with sex and pornography addiction. I'm also talking to the relationship addicts, like me. Because, you know, lust is different for men and women. Men, you see something sexy, you want to have sex. A woman, I can see a picture of a naked man, 50-50 chance my first thought is still, did I unload the dishwasher? You know, it's, it's just different. And, and, and I say that because I want you to understand that you don't need to look at porn to have a lust problem. For women, it can be more about narrative. When I uh, moved to Orlando in 2006, I had habitually, serially been in romantic relationships, but none of them since high school, really. And, and none of them lasted more than two years because I didn't realize that it was an addiction. I didn't know that I was just chasing dopamine from relationship to relationship. I had to go through recovery to break my habit. You can get a dopamine hit from looking at porn, or you can get a dopamine hit by falling in love, or by you know, fantasizing about handsome vampires who longingly watch you sleep. <laughs> Don't play dumb. I know you've seen Twilight. <laughs> but that warm and fuzzy feeling, that, that adoration, that obsession even, that we call feeling in love, it, it has a shelf life. 
I mean, it really doesn't, and I don't say this to depress you, especially you young folks. Um, I, I'm saying it because we have to understand that that is a transition that's supposed to happen. And if we don't allow that nat natural transition from infatuation to trust and commitment and love and intimacy that happens, then, then we will just keep chasing the dopamine over and over again forever. And we'll act in ways that hurt us and hurt other people and we will justify it by calling it love. It's not love. First time I told uh, Rob when we were dating, I told him, I love you. Uh, he said, thank you. <laughs> Which, and he's a really wonderful man. Um, he's not a jerk. So, you know, after I stopped crying uncontrollably, uh, he, he patiently and gently explained to me that love is a commitment word. <laughs> uh, and he's right. You know, love, the, 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 the gentle, loyal, long-suffering, biblical kind, love, the action, it's a feeling. It's, it, it, it's not a feeling, it's a commitment. Love is not a feeling. We, we don't have complete control over our feelings, right? We, we don't have complete control over that. We only have control over how we respond to them. Attraction is a feeling. You know, sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you're attracted to someone you shouldn't be. But you do have control over what you do with that feeling. The grass is always greener where you water it. And fantasy is a way of watering an attraction and making it grow. Lust is not love. Lust is, is, is sexual desire with most of the good parts stripped away and it can ruin us because here's the thing, here's the problem. Sex will still do what it was designed to do even when we use it outside of its boundaries. It will still bring pleasure and therefore it can be addictive. It will still create life like the unwanted pregnancy of Bathsheba and it will still bond people together, heart and soul and flesh but without, without the, the commitment of marriage. Those two bonded people can be painfully, violently ripped apart. If you've ever um, super glued, you tried to fix something with super glue and you accidentally super glue your finger to the thing <laughs> that you're trying to fix, this happened once with, with a necklace to me, uh, you know, you can get your finger back when you pry it off, you can get your finger back, but not all of it, <laughs> right? Some of your finger will be permanently stuck to that thing and they will DNA identify you by your necklace forever. Um, this is what happens to our hearts when we unite our bodies outside of the commitment of marriage. We glue our hearts to other people. And when we break up, you know, we never come back quite whole. Sex is a good thing. It's a good thing if we observe its design. Inside its boundaries, it brings life, like a river. But outside of the boundaries, it can bring death, like a flood. And lust always lures us outside the boundaries. That's why resisting it begins with keeping our body in the right place. David, David allowed his body to be in the wrong place. And, and we do too. We do so often, you know, because we want to have it both ways. We want to we wanna flirt with with temptation. We want to imagine what it would be like. We want to walk right up to the line but not cross it. But we can't slow dance with temptation all day and night and then expect to resist it in the when the moment arrives for the temptation to become reality, which it always does. And if you've gone through the motions in your head over and over, I mean, that's what fantasy is, right? It's rehearsal. Then with any, just like with any rehearsal, it would be that much easier to take the stage for a real show. 
We have to keep our bodies in the right place. And that's more than just avoiding places of temptation. That's also proactively putting our bodies in the places where they're supposed to be. If you're supposed to be with the troops, King David, be with the troops. Where are the places in your life that you should be showing up, but you're not? Because you're off courting your temptations. Is it your family? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your physical health? Is it your job? Success. Success doesn't look like staring at sin in the face and saying, no, it looks like not staring at it to begin with. We gotta keep our bodies in the right place. David didn't have his body in the right place and it brought a lot of people a lot of pain because it's not just the sin. This is so important. It is not just the sin, it's the fallout. Lust leads to secrets at a minimum. But then we learned from David's story that, that it can also lead to murder and heartbreak and death, and none of it will be supernatural. One consequence in this story that does seem supernatural to me is that David and Bathsheba's son gets sick and dies. And the way that it's written, the Lord will take away your sin, you are not going to die, but the son born to you will die. It's, it's almost as if David's son, the child of David, dies in his place. And while this is tragic and sad, the author is also hinting to us something about the hope that's coming, e even when the worst has happened. And you know, maybe the worst has happened for you. Maybe there, may, maybe, maybe there was a divorce. Maybe you got pregnant. Maybe you just wanna unmake some decisions you made. Guys, listen, that's not the end of your story. The death of this child and, 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 and the affair before it, it was the worst that could happen. But it was also a whisper of what God has planned to do to redeem his people from the fallout of all our sin forever. We don't, we don't practice the virtues and avoid the vices to get God to love us, he already does. And we know that because a thousand years after Bathsheba, another one child of David's line would die in the place of sinners, Jesus Christ. He put his body where, he put his body in the right place because ours so often is not. And he gave up his flesh to death because he believed that ours was worth redeeming. We don't obey God so he'll spare our lives. We obey him out of gratitude because he already has. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of flesh. Thank you for the pleasures that we receive through it, through the intimacy that we can experience with you and with others through it. And Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed this gift to lead us astray. Lord, forgive us for allowing lesser pleasures to displace the ones for which you made us and have mercy on us, God. Have mercy on us, especially for those in this room with hearts like mine who have experienced deep shame and heartache as a result of sexual brokenness. Be tender to us, God, and remind us that, that we've become new creations through the gift of your grace, we are, we are not who we were. We are who you say we are, beloved, perfect, and made clean. Help us to examine ourselves and, and, and find the places where we've allowed our bodies and our hearts to get to the wrong place and give us strength. Give us strength to show up for the people that you've given us to love, including ourselves. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.